Today's reading is John 1, 19 through 23. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. All right. Well, hey, good morning once again. And again, welcome to FBC Online. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. and just want to say so glad that you're with us. And it's been a special morning again as we're marking the, the one-year anniversary of the COVID shutdown that first Sunday, March 15th last year where we had to go online for the first time. It's hard to believe it's been a year, but it's been special to hear uh, this morning about what people have learned, what uh, the reflections from people in our church and all that God is teaching us. It's been so uh, encouraging. I just wanted to read really briefly from Psalm 46. This was the text that uh, we preached from that first Sunday that we had to stay at home and everything was up in the air. We had no idea what was going on. We went to Psalm 46 which says, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. And I know that uh, over the course of this year, it's felt like things have been shaken, like mountains have fallen into the heart of the sea, uh, like everything we've known, the stability of the ground beneath us has been up in the air. Uh, and yet God has uh, proven himself once again to be faithful. I'm just amazed here, sitting in 2021 in March. I remember a year ago when we preached this sermon and and sitting in my office with Pastor Lee and Pastor Kyle, and we were thinking about just uh, all these questions. We filled up a whiteboard with questions about what does this mean for our church? Uh, All these questions about about finances, about programs, about how are we going to do things? What is church going to look like? There was so much unknown, and there's still plenty of unknown today, right? We're not quite out of the woods yet, although it feels like we're, we're getting really close, which is exciting. But it's fun to to look back on that meeting and to think about, wow, look at how God uh, sustained us. Look at how our church is still here. The people of the church are still engaging. We're still growing. We're still uh, engaging the needs of the world. We're on mission. We're still making much of Jesus together. Uh, We're financially stable. The the year was incredibly strong in that way. And so there's just been so many ways we can look back at the last year and see how God has moved. And I'm just so grateful for you, church, for your, your generosity, your giving, your, your, uh, how you've showed up just consistently and leaned into this difficult time. So I'm grateful for you, and we're celebrating uh, what God has done. Uh, would you join me in the book of John, chapter 1, now as we get ready to, to jump into the message. We have been, uh, for a few weeks now, in this sermon series called Come and See, just this invitation to come and look at Jesus. Uh, John, the Gospel of John, is just this powerful book that just shows us again and again who Jesus is. So we're walking through it little by little. This is week four of the sermon series, and we are in verse 19 of chapter 
1. And hey, just want to say as well, as a word of introduction, uh, we're excited about Easter Sunday coming up. And as Darren mentioned, we are hoping to do baptisms on Easter Sunday. Historically, the church has celebrated baptisms on Resurrection Sunday because that, that symbolism of baptism just so clearly demonstrates resurrection, coming up out of the water, this new life that we have in Christ. And so if you uh, have put your faith in Jesus, but have not been baptized, uh, we encourage you to take that step of obedience. Jesus calls all believers to be baptized, uh, to make that, that public commitment, that public declaration, that public identification with Jesus. That's what baptism is all about. And so if you are a believer, but have not been baptized, we would love to talk with you about that. You can indicate that on your connection card, and we'd love to follow up with you. Hey, let's uh, have a word of prayer together. <clears throat> Father, we turn our attention to you uh, now, and we ask that you would speak through your word. God, we realize our, our need. We come to you just humble. We come dependent. Uh, we realize that we often are deceived. Our eyes are often blinded to the truth. We often deceive ourselves. And, and Lord, we need uh, the truth of your word and by the power of your spirit just to, to pierce through the darkness, to shine brightly, to, uh, to help us see what is true and what is real. So God, would your word uh, guide us, uh, teach us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, it's been said that the Gospel of John, and really the whole Bible you could say this about, but it's been said that the Gospel of John is shallow enough for a child to play in, and yet deep enough for an elephant to swim. Again, the Gospel of John is shallow enough for a child to play in, and deep enough for an elephant to swim. Meaning that the truths that we find here in the Gospel of John are, are simple enough, accessible enough, understandable enough for any of us to receive, even a child. And, and yet, these same chapters and these same truths that we come across are profound enough to arrest the brightest minds, to provoke reflection by the deepest thinkers for a lifetime. And we've seen some of this already in the text. We've been through the first 18 verses of John chapter 1, which is the, the prologue. It's this, this uh, introduction, this famous introduction to the book. And it holds some of the, the highest heights in all of Scripture. And so before we, we step into verse 19 and on, I just want us to look back at, at what we have seen so far in John chapter 1. The book opens up with John 1.1. It says, In the beginning... And so we're automatically reminded of the book of Genesis. We're reminded that there exists a, a sovereign creator God, one who was in the beginning. He has always existed. But we see that God the Father was not alone in the beginning. Right? John 1, 1 makes this staggering claim that the Word or the Son of God was with God the Father in the beginning, that the Son was God himself. And so we see that Jesus was and is God. The text goes on, verse 3, all things were made 
through Him. We see that through Jesus, verses 12 and 13, we are given the right to become children of God. We see in verse 14, as Lee preached on last week, that the Word became flesh. God Himself came and He he dwelt among us. He walked among us. He moved into the neighborhood, you could say. And Jesus came full of grace and truth. And the text powerfully in verse 18 says, No one has seen God, but Jesus has made the Father known. So if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And so whether you're a child or an elephant, you can keep coming back to these waters again and again. And now we press into the rest of the book here, starting in verse 19. Would you look at it with me? It says, Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, Well, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Finally, they said, Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. And so verse 19 continues the book of John here, and we're again introduced to this figure, John, not the author of the Gospel of John, not John the Apostle, but John the Baptist, or JTB, as some affectionately call him. That's what I say usually when I'm writing, JTB. John the Baptist, he's down by the river, he's doing his thing, he's teaching, he's baptizing people, and it appears in the text, right, that his ministry is exploding. He's, he's become a pretty big deal. People are coming out to hear him preach. People are coming out to get baptized. The text says, so, so much so, uh, this is causing such a stir that verse 19 tells us what? That there are Jewish leaders in Jerusalem that are sending detectives basically to figure out who this guy is. Who are you? They're asking him. These bigwigs, these, these leaders in the capital of Jerusalem and in the temple are maybe a bit nervous. There's this, this movement taking place with John the Baptist at the center of it. Uh, it's out in the wilderness. we got to go look into that. Who is this guy? What does this mean for us? This could be some sort of threat. What authority does this guy have? I mean, he's baptizing. What, what's going on? So verse 19, who is this guy? And look at how John responds. In this interview, verse 20, he says, He did not fail to confess, but confess freely, I am not the Messiah. He says, look guys, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. That word more literally means the, the anointed one. Uh, the Messiah or the Christ was this title, this, this figure that the people of God, the Jews, were waiting for. They were longing for a Savior to come and rescue them. For uh, one to come in the name of God, to bring the kingdom of God. And at this time in history, in the first century, the hopes for a Messiah to come were at an all-time high. The people were oppressed by the Romans. They were in the land, but the Romans were in power. And so they were longing for a, a Messiah to come and establish the hopes of the people of Israel. And so they see this John the Baptist. And clearly, some big stuff is, stuff is happening in his ministry. And so they naturally go and ask him, hey, are, are you the guy? Are you claiming to be this guy? Uh, what's going on here? And they keep asking him, okay, uh, maybe you're not the Messiah, but verse 21, he says, I'm not the Messiah, but they ask, are you Elijah then? 
Okay, this, this key Old Testament prophet that, again, many people in the first century expected Elijah uh, would return one day as this prominent kind of end times figure. And John the Baptist says, no, hey, I'm not Elijah. And then verse 20, are you the prophet then? They were expecting as well a prophet like Moses to come once again in the end times. And you're out in the wilderness. Moses was in the wilderness. God's done some big special things in the wilderness. So are you the prophet we've been waiting for? He says, no. It's not me. And you can see then that the people are probably getting a little bit frustrated, right? Verse 22, they're like, who are you then? You say, you're not the Messiah. You are not Elijah. You're not the prophet. Like, throw us a bone here, man, because we've been sent on a mission to figure out who you are, and we've got to go back to headquarters and tell them something. So, verse 22, what, what do you say about yourself? Who are you? Verse 23, John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees had been sent, or who had been sent, questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. And so in response, they're like, finally, in, okay, who are you? What do you say about yourself? What does he say? Verse 23, he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, the voice, I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. We're like, okay, if you're not the Messiah, you're not Elijah, you're not the Christ, why are you baptizing then? Because typically we'll baptize converts to Judaism. So on, on what authority are you baptizing Jews? This is very strange. What's this all about? And he says, hey, yeah, I'm baptizing with water, but someone is coming after me who's much more important than I am. I'm not the Messiah, but what I'm doing is I'm preparing the way. I'm telling you to get ready for his arrival. There's a few things I want us to notice in this response here, in this interaction with John the Baptist. And the first thing I want us to notice is the example that John sets. What does John do fundamentally? He fundamentally points away from himself, right? I'm not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. I'm not the hero here. Because I'm just a witness, right? So the honor and the glory does not belong to me. It belongs to the one who will come after me. It belongs to Jesus. In fact, verse 27, notice what he says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. In the ancient world, often slaves would carry the sandals of their masters. Saying, I'm not even worthy to be a servant in this guy's household. I'm not even worthy to be a slave of the Messiah. That's how much greater than me he is. So put yourself in John's shoes. I want us to think about this, okay? Or put yourself in John's sandals, perhaps. Maybe it would have been easy for John, it would have been tempting for him to, to self-promote, right? To be like, hey, my ministry is kind of a big deal. God is clearly using me in big ways. Maybe it would have been tempting for him to kind of try to carve out a little honor for himself. You know, he's being interviewed by these reps from the Capitol. He's got this primetime TV special where they're trying to figure out who he is. Maybe he's starting to wonder, 
maybe I am a bigger deal than I realized at first. Maybe God has bigger plans for me than I see right now. Maybe it is more about me than I initially thought. And he starts to maybe, or he could potentially start to enjoy the spotlight a little bit. Like, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not going to claim that. But uh, I do have some good things to say. So let let me tell you a little bit more about me. Thank you uh, so much for asking. How how easy could it have been for him to just want to feed his ego? Isn't that what we do? It's kind of nice when the spotlight's on us. It's kind of nice when people think well of us. kind of nice when people compliment us or tell us how great we are. It's so easy for us to kind of inflate our own importance. Happens in church world too, right? We've been around a while. We're well-respected. If we know the Bible, it's easy to get get a little puffed up at how knowledgeable we are, how much we contribute to the life of the church. But John sets a different example. He doesn't go that route. What does he say? He shows us his example that the Christian life is about pointing away from yourself. Pointing away from yourself and to Jesus. That's the example he sets. And that's why one of the, the phrases that we throw around here as a church is, uh, Jesus is the hero. Right? We'll pray that Jesus would be clearly shown to be the hero. Jesus needs to be the hero of our sermons. Jesus needs to be the hero of our kids' ministry. Jesus needs to be the hero of our youth ministry. Jesus needs to be the hero of our church. It's not any human leader. It's not me. It's not the staff team here. It's not our, your small group leaders. As great as they are, we're not... The hero. And so we got to follow the example of John the Baptist, where we will point away from ourselves. You know, one of my favorite uh, authors, former pastor named Jared Wilson, he shares this story one time. He's, he's getting ready to preach at a church, and someone comes up to him and realizes kind of who he is. And he's like, oh, you're, you're the preacher. You're, you're getting ready to speak. You're, you're the preacher. And he says, yeah. And the man says, oh, so, so you're the guy with all the answers. And Jared Wilson says, no, I'm the guy who points to that guy. <laughs> Isn't that great? You're the guy with all the answers, preacher. And he's like, uh, no, I'm the guy who points to the guy with all the answers, which would be Jesus, right? I'm not the Savior. I can't save my kids. I can't save my spouse. I'm not the answer to to all my problems or the problems that my neighbors face. I'm I'm not the one who can fix people. I'm not the one who can transform hearts. Jesus is. He's the hero. And when when we realize that, a few things happen. First, it it keeps the emphasis of our ministry where it should be. Our goal is to preach Jesus, to share Jesus, to point people to Jesus. He's He's the hero. He's the one that people need. I'm not self-sufficient, I'm dependent, and I desperately need Jesus as well. And so it allows our ministry, just to be clear, we want to present Jesus as the hero. But second, what this does when we follow the example of John the Baptist, is it gives us incredible freedom. It gives us incredible freedom to realize that we don't have to try to bear that burden, the burden to save people, the burden to transform people's hearts. We don't carry that weight. It's not all up to us. And so we can slow down. We can acknowledge our God-given limits instead of hurrying and just putting more on our plate, trying to be the Savior, trying to be the answer for everyone's needs. We can realize that we have limits. 
there's freedom there? Don't we put this strange pressure on ourselves to have the answers, to be the solution? I think that, that sometimes we put this pressure on ourselves to be experts about everything. Like, do you notice that on, on social media? Like, whenever something happens in, in the world, all of a sudden, like, overnight, there's countless experts on the subject, right? Like, there's all kinds of experts right now on, on public policy and on infectious diseases, a lot of those right now. You know, these uh, experts now on, on complicated historical issues. Like, overnight, we all, I think because of social media, just pretend that like we're all qualified to speak intelligibly on, on every current event. I'm an overnight expert on this subject. It's like, it's crazy, right? And we, we try to, I think sometimes, hide our own insecurities or feel relevant sometimes by making all these confident assertions about the way things are or how we really know what's going on. When, when frankly, a lot of the time, we don't know what we're talking about. Right? A lot of times, let's be honest, we're not experts at everything. And there's a lot of freedom in saying, you know, I don't have to have an answer or an explanation or have this all figured out for every single thing that comes up. There's freedom in, in having a realistic view of our own importance. There are some things that we're each qualified to speak confidently and intelligently on. But we're not all experts at everything. And so there's a lot of freedom in realizing that. There's freedom in obscurity. There's freedom in realizing I'm not the Messiah. I don't have all the answers, but I can point uh, to the one who is and who does, and that's Jesus. And so we can follow the example of John here in the text. I'm not the Messiah. But I also want you to see the invitation of John. What is he saying in verse 23? What's his invitation he says, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. So John is a voice calling out, telling people what? To, to get ready. And it's really interesting here because what he's doing, he's quoting the Old Testament. He's, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 40 where these same words are shared. And there in Isaiah chapter 40, the people of God are living in exile. They've been taken captive by Babylon. They're far from home, and the people are longing for refreshment, for redemption, to return home. They're in need of renewal, and it's there that Isaiah declares, hey, it's coming. Get ready. Make straight the way for the Lord. And so, John the Baptist is looking back at uh, Isaiah chapter 40 and saying, hey, something similar here is going on in the first century. But it's interesting, right, because... His audience is not in exile. Geographically speaking, they're, they're in the land. They're in Jerusalem. The people of God are not off living in Babylon. And yet, he's still saying, hey, prepare the way for the Lord. In the same way that those exiles needed renewal, needed redemption, needing to be brought home, so too do you. He's making a deeper point, saying, you people are, are in the wilderness. You need renewal. God's about to do something big. I want you to get ready for it, because Jesus is about to come on the scene. And so there's this, this pattern here, and this point that can be made, that, that people are in desperate need of God's redeeming work. Apart from the work of God, we're in the wilderness. And the wilderness is marked by drought and weariness and exile. Apart from the work of God to save us, we're, we're not at home. 
We want to return home. We want to, to flourish. We need to be refreshed by the presence of God. And John's saying, hey, look no further. Jesus is the way. But what's interesting is that it's possible on the surface for people to miss that. It's possible for, for the people who heard John saying, say, what are you talking about? Why are you quoting this, this passage about exile from Isaiah chapter 40? We're, we're in the land. We're, we're here. And so many people think that we don't, we don't need us. We're not in the wilderness. Like, we're, we're home. John's saying, ah, but you're not. There's a deeper reality at play here. And so the good news of Jesus, in the same way, the good news of Jesus is for those who realize they're in the wilderness. For those who realize their need. For those who realize the need for redemption. The, re- the need for, for help. The gospel of Jesus is for those who come to the end of themselves. For those who are desperate, needy, sick. Where we say, you know what, I need someone to do for me what I cannot do for myself. I've tried. I've tried to jump through the hoops. I've tried to be my own savior. I've tried to be my own God. It doesn't work. And so John the Baptist was a guide for the people. And he can be a guide for us today. Make straight the way for the Lord. God's renewal, God's redemption is coming. And it's it's actually now here for us in Christ. We've now seen the finished work of Christ. We can come to Jesus and receive. And so that's, friends, what this whole encounter is about in the text. John the Baptist saying, hey, I'm not the guy, I'm not the Messiah, but let me show you who is. Let me point you away from myself to Jesus. Now, after this encounter, this uh, moment here with his interrogators, uh, we see he gets a lot more specific about who Jesus is. Look at verse 29 with me. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Okay, so it's the next day here, right? Verse 29, after John's kind of heated press conference with the religious leaders from Jerusalem, we have this encounter where, where John, in just a few short verses, tells us a lot about who Jesus is. What does he do? He sees, he sees Jesus, and he says, Look, or behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the guy I've been telling you about. Now, I want to hone in on this phrase, the Lamb of God. This is so important for us to grasp. What, is, what does he mean here? I want us to think about what that phrase might mean to a first century Jew, someone who knows the Old Testament back and forth. When they hear about a lamb or the lamb of God, what would they think of? <clears throat> we would think, well, probably something about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, lambs that were sacrificed as offerings for sin. Maybe a reader of the Old Testament would think about uh, Isaiah 53, the prophecy of a coming Savior who would suffer 
a lamb led to the slaughter, a lamb that would bear the sin of the people. Maybe you think about uh, uh, Abraham and his son Isaac and the almost sacrifice that was when, it, when there was a lamb that was needed for the sacrifice to take Isaac's place. Maybe you would think of the Passover, right? Probably most prominently Jews would think about the Passover lamb in the book of Exodus when the people were slaves in Egypt and God rescued them. And how did he protect them from the plague? The blood of a lamb. A lamb was killed and the blood was painted on the doorposts of every home to protect them from judgment and death that night. And so in the Old Testament, there's all these these clear themes and images that come with the reference to a lamb, references to sacrifice, to substitution, to protection, and these are all applied here to Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus would go to the cross and he would bear the sin of the world. And just how Isaac was spared because there was an animal for sacrifice put in his place, so we can be spared because Jesus, the lamb, went to his death. Just how the sacrificial lambs were offered as offerings for sin, so there's a sacrifice that's been made for us, for our sins, and that is Jesus. Just how the blood of a lamb protected the people in the Passover, so the blood of Jesus protects us from death and judgment because of his work. The connection is clear, friends. And I don't think it's a coincidence that that John comes on the scene. He says, hey, get ready for the Messiah. He's coming. And then immediately after that in the text, the next few verses, what do we read? Jesus, the Messiah, is identified as the Lamb of God. So right away, almost the first thing that John tells us after this is he is the one who's going to take away our sin. And so I want us to see that, that we see, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. Through him, God is going to be victorious and rescue his people and redeem his people. He is our king that we are to worship and serve, but we also see the kind of Messiah he is. He is one who would lay down his life as a sacrifice. That's how God redeems us. That's how God rescues us. That's how God wins the day. It's by giving his life for us and taking away the sin of the world. It's hard for us to grasp how difficult this would be for the first century audience to hear because in the ancient world, uh, it was all about strength and power Uh, Who had the better God, the peoples would debate. The the bigger and better God was marked by the God who won the battle, the God that conquered. And so the image of suffering, the image of a Savior dying, like dying a criminal's death on a cross, that was not a picture of victory. That was not a picture that the ancient mind could really get behind. That was not what the Jews wanted. That was not what the surrounding peoples wanted. But Jesus showed us that he's the Savior that we needed, even if we didn't realize it. And he shows us that our biggest problem is not out there. It's not some uh, oppressive empire. Our biggest problem is not some human enemy. Our biggest problem is not some like really difficult life circumstances, as hard as those things might be. That's not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is our separation from God because of our sin. And Jesus came to address that. And so here's the heart of the gospel. How do you get out of the wilderness? 
How do you receive blessing and salvation from God? In light of your sin, how is it that we are reconciled to God? How do you live a truly free and flourishing life now and forever? Is it it by being a really spiritual person? Is it by going to church enough and giving enough and saying the right prayers in the right way? Is it about being good enough? Is it about paying God back maybe for some of the the bad things that you've done so that at the end of your life, the good scale outweighs the bad? No, it's not any of those things. No, we are only saved and redeemed and rescued and led out of the wilderness through Jesus, by receiving Jesus, the Lamb of God, by turning away from ourselves and putting our faith in Him. He died for you. He came to to bear the punishment for your sin and my sin, to die on a cross, to take our place, that we might be washed and forgiven, that we might be renewed, adopted, given new life. And so salvation is not about uh, anything that you earn or that you work for or that you figure out. Salvation is given to you by grace. It's a gift from God through Jesus. And so if we can grasp the heart of the gospel and what Jesus came to do as the Lamb of God, to came to take away our sin, this will radically change how we live. In one, well, in a few ways. First, it brings us incredible confidence, confidence and freedom that our identity as uh, people of God, as children of God, is secure. Right? We don't have to work for it. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to uh, do things so that we don't lose it. It's, just, it's given to us. It's secure. I came across this author recently who said, think about if in uh, a family... Uh, a son or a daughter starts to become insecure about their place in the family. Imagine a 12-year-old boy, for example, who starts to worry about uh, his place in the family, unsure how lasting that will be, and so he tries to do all these things to guarantee he'll have a place in his family going forward. He has, you know, tries to create a new birth certificate just to prove that he belongs. He, he works extra hard at all his chores. He's exhausted. He doesn't play with his friends anymore because he needs to make sure that his parents show that he's earning his way. He really, rig, uh, really rigidly starts to you know, imitate his dad and dress the way that his parents do just so that he'll belong. He's really stressed about his performance in school. He's stressed about earning money to contribute to the family, tries to get a job so that he'll have a place in the family. And, and his parents, this picture, start to notice some of this strange behavior. Like, what has gotten into our son? And imagine they ask him about it. And the son says, I'm I'm just doing all that I can to secure my place in the family, to show that I'm valuable, to bring in money, to to succeed in school, to bring honor to the family, to secure my place. What would a parent say to their child in that moment? A parent would say, son, rest easy. Your place is in our family is secure. You are our son. There's nothing you could do to earn your place in our family. You didn't get yourself into this family in the first place. You're not going to get yourself out of it. And so I want you to live in the rest and in the freedom knowing that you're a part of this family. Your identity is secure and settled. 
You don't have to worry and look over your shoulder if you mess up. This is the confidence that we can have in Christ. Do you see the freedom that brings? Do you see the rest, the joy that comes knowing I am loved? Because of the work of Jesus, I'm adopted. I'm brought into the family of God. It's secure. I don't have to work for it and earn it and worry about losing it. Because I didn't earn it. It was given to me as a gift. And if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus, you've never received this, this joy, never received this security, this confidence, I invite you to put your trust in him today. And friends, this also completely changes how we engage with our neighbors. Do you realize that? If, if we realize the heart of the gospel, we'll be uh, the most humble people around. We'll carry ourselves with incredible humility because we know that we're not smarter than other people. We're not better than other people. That's not why we're saved. Because we earned God's, we were able to jump through the hoops better than other people or connect the dots better than other people. All we did to be saved and receive the blessings of God was acknowledge our need. Like, that's it. We really opened our hands up and said, okay, God, I'm empty. I come to you with open hands. It's all a gift. It's all grace. And so, so pride, being puffed up as a Christian just makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. I want you to see, lastly, how the text closes out in verse 32 and 33. John tells us a little bit more about Jesus. It says, John gave the testimony, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Now, you got to understand, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would uh, come and anoint people for certain tasks at certain times that would not remain on someone in the way that the Holy Spirit indwells believers today. But it was believed that in that time, the coming Messiah, their ministry would be marked by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we see that with Jesus here, God pours out his Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes down and remains on Jesus. That word underlined, remain, is key. The ministry, the life of Jesus was marked by the Holy Spirit. And that had clear messianic implications. And not only this, not only was Jesus' ministry marked by the power of the Holy Spirit, but verse 33 says that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Okay, John baptized with water. Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Meaning what? Meaning that those who receive Jesus will receive that same Spirit, the indwelling presence of God, the Holy Spirit in every believer. This becomes true for you at conversion. The moment you believe and put your faith in Jesus, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not some second blessing. It's not some extra thing that you work for. You are given the gift of the Holy Spirit when you believe. And thus, Christians are given this incredible promise and the joy of having the indwelling presence of God within us to convict us, to teach us, to transform our hearts, to sanctify us, to help us more and more look like Jesus. And so, friends, in this text, we have this powerful example of John. I hope that you and I will be able to follow the example of John and point away from ourselves, I'm not the Messiah but let me show you the one who is. I pray that we would receive this invitation from John to prepare our hearts to receive Jesus, the Lamb of God, and to put our trust in him. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, and we thank you for your son, Jesus. Jesus, we worship you. We praise you. You are the Lamb of God. You came to take away the sin of the world. You came to lead us out of exile. You came to lead us out of the wilderness into life, eternal life. Thank you for your work on the cross. Thank you for dying for us. Pray that you fill us with your spirit. Help us follow you faithfully. It's in your name we pray. Amen.